I really want to see us uh, be better to each other and certainly be more thoughtful and caring about how you break a cycle of poverty, break a cycle of violence, break a cycle of illiteracy, uh, break cycles of corruption so that all people have just a chance at this choice-filled life. Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Have you ever thought about hosting your own podcast? This episode of Clear Choices is brought to you in partnership with Libsyn, powerful podcast hosting, the podcast hosting, distribution, and monetization platform since 2004. Use promo code CHOICES and you can get over one month of free services. Go to Libsyn.com, promo code CHOICES. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. This is your host, Rob Eigner. Starting off with another fascinating episode of Clear Choices. I have a guest today that I've been uh, wanting to get for a long time. I've been wanting to talk to someone who's a professional in, in education, dealing with schooling of children and COVID. And uh, I finally have a, a fantastic guest today. Our guest is Maria Joel Karstarfen. She has been the Atlanta Public School Superintendent where there are 52,000 students and an over a billion dollar budget. But that's not the only incredible thing about her background. In 2014, that school district was charged with the largest cheating scandal in the history of public school education. And she was brought on to redirect the school district, if you will, from that very, very difficult situation. Since leaving the school district recently, she has started a nonprofit, which we're going to talk about, which is about income disparity. And with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Maria. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you and to go through the kind of choices I made that brought me to where I am today. It's, uh, it's been a crazy wild ride. Uh, it, uh, it sounds like it. I appreciate it. And, not, and on top of it, you know, I, I just invited you to be on the show because of the background I just shared with the listeners. But now you're, you know, you're living in Atlanta, which is at the epicenter of so many things right now with politics oh, and, and a, hur- a hurricane <laughs> just hit and, and COVID cases are rising. You got all kinds of stuff going on there. Yeah. I mean, we call it Atlanta for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And I have been there. I have been to Atlanta for a few times. It's a great, great town. So uh, before we dive into the, the experience you had with the school district, talk to me a little bit about what it's like to be a resident there when you're at just really, truly the epicenter of senatorial and presidential politics. Well, I mean, for me, it, uh, it totally suits my, uh, my personality, the, um, the areas of my interest. Uh, I love to live life, live it to its fullest. I like to feel it. I like to taste it. I love to be energized by it. And so no matter how complicated for some these issues may be, I, you know, have a, a leadership style and certainly was raised to embrace challenge and to take it head on. Uh, I was born and raised in Selma, Alabama, also a hotbed uh, in its day. Uh, it is where the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, really was able to kind of take flight. Uh, the civil rights movement was centered in areas like my hometown. Um, my father's from there. Uh, we were born and raised there. So for me in Atlanta, I just feel like it is it is kind of a culmination spot. You know, it always has been a civil rights epicenter. It's the gateway to the Southeast. It's, um, it's where, you know, the Civil War uh, was also you know, like kind of fought and battled. And so I just feel like it's, it's really part of the culture and the context there. And, um, and I, for me growing up in a civil rights community, 
that was smaller uh, with a huge, you know, infamous reputation given what happened for Bloody Sunday and some other moments in the 1960s. In the end, Atlanta's just a bigger version of it. And so I, you know, I feel hopeful when we're going through these kinds of struggles. I know for a lot of people, it can create fear. Uh, I know folks were concerned about civil unrest and, you know, violence that was happening. And uh, I just believe in peaceful protest. You know, I was educated and, and raised in large part by some of those icons like John Lewis, uh, who has always been a dear friend and uh, God rest his soul, but hung in there with me to the end of my superintendency. Uh, so I, you know, I, maybe I'm one of those one-off people, but I think it's kind of the reason I'm on your show, right? To uh, talk about why for some, these kinds of circumstances might be troublesome and hard. Um, but for me, I feel like it is a fight for the soul of the nation. It's a continuation of civil rights. It's a continuation of making our country uh, be responsive to the diversity that we have and to people like you and me who care about how folks make their choices and what that does for our communities and our nation. I love that. I love that. Before, uh, I actually even needed to hear that. So thank you for that. Um, be, before before we dive into the school thing, you know, you you mentioned Selma, Alabama. How much of having been raised there do you think shaped you to do the work that you've chosen to do? I mean, it is in my blood. Uh, you know, my parents. I had great parents. I mean, my family is amazing. I'm one of four girls. Uh, my my parents. Uh, you know, whenever bad things happen, and people are like, "How do you shake that off?" Like. Why doesn't that just bring you to your knees? And goodness knows, in my experience in superintendency, trying to turn around a district with the beleaguered uh, history and certainly the black eye of the largest cheating scandal can really put you in check. I always said I got enough love in my childhood, not just from my family, but from my town. I feel like I was raised literally by the village. You could not, you couldn't be, you know, in our town without everybody knowing your business and knowing what you were up to. And they, no one thought twice about weighing in with your parents um, on what they thought. And so, uh, you know, from the, the school librarian to the, you know, debate coach and the band director, I just, you know, and the neighbor and the dentist down the street, I mean, you just couldn't get away from a lot of regular people who had really big ideas and opinions about the fate of particularly African-Americans because it was, at least in my experience in public schools, an overwhelmingly Black education system. Mm. And I went to public schools my entire life, and that was really the canary in the coal mine. You could always tell what was about to kind of pop in the community by what was happening in the schools. And that's kind of true across the nation. But in my town, I mean, it was, it, you, you could feel it all the time. So Selma is in my blood, the kind of um, probably feistiness and energy that you hear, the passion about doing work, ensuring that kids have a quality education, making sure that minority kids, black, brown, poor kids, kids get an opportunity for a choice-filled life. Uh, I think I was born into it. Uh, education and civil rights, voting rights, uh, it's kind of all I feel like um, my foundation was filled with, plus a ton of love. And I think that makes you, at least in my world, um, I couldn't be more proud of my sisters. We're all kind of in our own way, our own version of a little freedom fighter. And we do it in different venues law, medicine, business, you know, education. And, uh, and we were always encouraged by not only my parents, but my town. I mean, they have always pushing and loving and encouraging, even when I was faced with pretty tough decisions about why I would go in one direction versus another. And because of that, I just think, uh, I'm just blessed, you know, and, and, and my fight in education has always been, how do you support caregivers so they can really love and support their children more, but at the same time, create systems, in my case, public education systems 
that uh, provide a quality education so kids can have those choices in life. And uh, I've carried that with me all my life. And I think I'm a stronger person for it. I love that. Now, now, prior to taking over the Atlanta Public School District, you had you had carried a similar role in other cities like Austin, et cetera. When you took over in Austin, they had already had, I mean, in, excuse me, in Atlanta, they'd already had this cheating scandal. So what what led you to the choice to dive into that? What I'm assuming was a big hot mess. Yeah, well, you know, I just to be clear, like I have been unbelievably deliberate in the pathway of public education. I've always made a point to be in large urban centers where there are large numbers of black, brown, poor kids, where um, where you're in the capital city. So you can influence not only the administration of the work, but the policies that guide that work at the capital and with elected officials. Uh, so I've, you know, I was kind of raised on a paradigm that says, you know, if you really want to make a difference, it's going to be thoughtful and more strategic uh, when it comes to serving the most disenfranchised, the most underserved, because, you know, they, without that kind of thoughtful packaging, a lot of things will slip through the cracks and you can't make the impact that they desperately need you to do as you will with the time that you have. You know, without the experience of these other incredibly challenging school systems, but nothing like what I faced in Atlanta, I don't think I would have been prepared for the basic stuff, you know, being able to like really run the the business of superintendency sort of in a in a routine that was very comfortable. The other part or the majority of my energy in Atlanta was about changing something that is almost impossible to change, and that was culture. Moving from an adult, child-centered, moving from corruption to something that actually served taxpayers, educators, and children well, moving from um, disenfranchisement to engagement. I mean, those were things that you know were a lot less troublesome in other districts. And in Atlanta, you were literally kind of digging a system out of a situation where people had really lost faith and any kind of comfort with this billion dollar entity that that just simply couldn't run well, where people were always um, hustling the system, where systems were always broken buses were never on time, you know, you, I mean, just, you could, if you name a problem, we had it. Uh, and so our lion's share of uh, problematic things in bureaucratic systems, uh, on top of people completely losing faith in, in it first, uh, was, uh, was a real challenge. But I am always grateful to those other systems for really allowing me to grow up in I was very young when I started you know had a lot of things to learn and in due time it made me made it possible for us to be able to give Atlanta a fighting chance and uh and and that fighting chance was um was something we had to earn even after all that training all that experience uh we were starting from scratch it was it was a big ground game plus a lot of strategy and having to um, cheerlead and horsewhip people the entire way. So tell me, um, what exactly was the cheating scandal? Was it a testing scandal? What was it? And then what would you say was the key choice you made to sort of turn that district into the right direction to get through that cheating scandal? Yeah, so I wasn't there, of course. The cheating scandal actually broke, you know, several years before I became superintendent. But by the time I started in 2014, it was actually going to court. So it took all that time, the cheating scandal, the arrest, the the district attorney building the So my first year, as you know, as I've said before, uh, in other uh, venues, in my first year, my first week, I mean, imagine the sobering uh, experience of a district attorney walking into your office, talking about a hundred additional unindicted co-conspirators, not counting all the other people that were already kind of in the system about to go to court. Uh, So 
so the cheating scandal itself, I mean, just to boil it down into a nutshell, was about adults who were changing answers on uh, state tests for their schools to have better performance. Kids were not involved in it. Parents were not involved in it. This was really at the hands of administrators uh, and teachers in some cases. And depending on what on what you believe, uh, you know, different people had different theories about what really did and did not happen. Of course, I'm not privy to those things. And things people did go to prison. Uh, it was a very hard time for the district. But um, but it certainly was one of the things I had to completely uh, get my heart and my mind around uh, before I was going to accept that job. Because interestingly enough, I'd been recruited a couple of times before, but I turned it down because it still felt like to me that the community wasn't ready. The board to whom I would be, you know, reporting they weren't ready for the real change. But over time, that did evolve. And I feel like the opening that I saw was a great match between a well-trained, ready-to-go professional superintendent who had the heart for the Deep South and for Black and Brown kids who was going home and at the same time had the right governance team that was willing to get into the um, mix of it with me to be sure that I had the support I needed. And I think that is a match that is unstoppable. And because of that, we were able to make a lot of great things happen. And I'm assuming this cheating occurred because that's how people could get additional funding for their schools, et cetera, right? So it was really ultimately about yeah, it's money. my understanding. Yeah, it was it was tied to compensation. It was tied to bonuses, not only for the uh, frontline team members, but for the superintendent as well. So there was a you know there was a theory that that was part of why people went so far, went as far as they did. You know, trying to hit targets, and when you couldn't hit the targets, it wasn't just the compensation, but it was also the high stakes accountability. Right? If you don't meet the in three years, for example, you could lose your job. And so for people, the livelihood connection, the compensation connection, uh, the high stakes accountability of, you know, if you don't make it, then you've got to go, according to some of the reports, uh, led to some pretty um, atrocious adult behavior. Mm, awful. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. So I want I want to pivot now to the original sort of impetus uh, for getting you on the show, and that is how you see school districts and parents and kids, teachers dealing with COVID in a you know public school forum. Both my uh, boys uh, go to public school. Uh, we've been homeschooling since. You know, I feel like it's March or April of last year, uh, continue to do so not easy or not. I shouldn't say homeschooling, distance learning. So talk to me a little bit about how you see um, uh, in, in Atlanta and then, of course, your opinion nationwide of of how schools are dealing with this, what they could and should be doing, what the weight and impact is on on the students and the families, et cetera. So just talk to me overall about this pandemic as it relates to public school? Yeah, I think it's a hard time for everyone, whether you're an educator or a caregiver. Uh, there's a lot of burden and uncertainty side of what's happened in COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So I think that everyone was a little prepared for the concept of spending some time working and teleschooling you know, from March to the summer. And people are used to their summers um, being time for kids to be able to reset and enjoy the, the time ready for the fall. So it was as rough as the start of the school year. So it was almost as if kids didn't really come back from spring break, you know, and had a couple extra months added to their summer. We ended schools. I think most districts did a great job of ending school well. Um, even preparing for graduations, virtual or otherwise. They got some closure to the end of the school year. But this start has been 
kind of a non-starter, right? Start dates keep getting pushed back. There's a lot of battles on the inside of homes and big school systems about whether or not you can open schools safely. Is virtual really the only option we can have? I'm watching that play out in my own home city, uh, which has been, you know, difficult to, to witness. But, um, but depending on what you believe, honestly, about some of the science of the virus or whether or not you believe public school systems can keep your child safe, uh, these are the battles that parents are, are having directly with school systems and superintendents and boards uh, that have added more fuel to the fire around whether or not, you know, we can actually have schools back and doing uh, education in person, face-to-face under the pandemic. And so in Georgia, for example, and across the DSAF, you do see uh, cases rising, I think in large part because of the politics around the virus as well. Um, Some people uh, have very strong opinions about whether or not you should wear masks or not. Um, They're making choices about whether or not they send their kids back to school based on the policies of the district around that. And I just think at the end of the day, the biggest hurt that will come out of this are poor kids, special education kids in particular. You can't convince me that a child with autism is getting the services that they need, for example. And then I would layer on that teachers are super stressed out you know, the exposure to the virus, uh, given the demographics that we have in teaching, uh, really makes a large part of the professional staff vulnerable to the disease itself. So I just think it's in a hard time for everyone. I don't think any decision is an easy decision. I know that I felt like uh, we're closing out the school year. I was literally making life and death decisions. Without, remember this is the early stages of the virus, without a lot of quality information. And we were hearing competing theories from the federal level to the state level to the local level. And that was, I'll tell you, that'll make you age. I, you know, I did not sleep for months, really stressed that we weren't making the right decisions fast enough to keep people safe and um, potentially uh, causing harm as far as death. And, and, I, and today, that hasn't changed for people who are in public education systems. Well, I, I concur completely, uh, particularly with what you said about special education. My wife is a speech pathologist, and she's in our back house uh, doing you know, therapy with autistic kids every day on Zoom, which is just not nearly as... Uh, effective as as normal schooling would be. One of the things, Marie, I wanted to ask you as it relates to COVID and schooling is I've noticed in our own school district, and I've read uh, in in multiple articles around the country, that there's a much higher level of concern and um, uh, around kids, you know, harming themselves, suicide, depression, et cetera. And I'm just seeing that from the sort of generalized communication that I'm getting from my own school district. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about that, how this, the, how COVID and the, the, the limits on socialization, et cetera, are affecting our, our youth. Yeah, I would, I would go a step further and say it's the limits of social and emotional learning, right? I mean, so uh, even, even in regular times, no pandemic, School districts were just starting to emerge with the science that says you can teach through direct instruction strategies for how to develop the social emotional um, supports for children. That's like that's that's data that uh, that is starting to emerge. For two years, I served on a commission for social emotional and academic development out of Washington, D.C. through the um, Aspen Institute and, and in partnership with incredible organizations like the Collaborative for Academic and Social-Emotional Learning, CASEL, uh, and, and other school districts around the country. And what we were finding is, you know, this is pre-pandemic, right, that kids still needed because of their home environments and some of the lack of skills that caregivers have and how to support their children today, 
that um, setting goals, overcoming obstacles, developing helping relationships were things that children were struggling with, so much so that their social emotional health, their ability to manage depression, uh, to be able to overcome bullying and other uh, challenges that you typically experience in adolescence. But when you couple it with uh, with technology, with, uh, with all that our kids are being exposed to today, they are struggling and parents are struggling with how to manage it as well. So part of what, what I think is, is, is very real about the pandemic is that you had those things going into uh, this uh, more distanced experience and parents and caregivers aren't prepared to do this work and kids are still growing up and they still need those supports. And unless you're teaching them explicitly and providing those supports from school, uh, and we were teaching adults how to do it. So it's, you know, it was already in its embryonic stages to begin with, but with the pandemic on top and with all that's happening, that's, you know, shifting everyone into even more technology, more connectivity, I think that that is no surprise that people will feel more isolated. Children will have more developmental needs around social emotional learning and uh, and having those kinds of supports in place, doing it technologically as well with teleschooling has really, uh, I think, crippled some of their development and their ability to have other support networks, whether that's educators or or extracurricular coaches or even their own peers, helping them in these kinds of ways will will show up more as we work our way through the pandemic and hopefully one day come back into learning environments where kids can socialize more and have more balance in their in their experience compared to this kind of isolation or being only with small groups of people who may be even reinforcing behaviors that are not healthy for children. And you hear the stories. It's terrible. Kids who are trapped in homes that are, where there's violence, where there's one caregiver who's under a lot of pressure, the psychosocial supports that, and now, you know, research in the Black community shows that that's not something we are as open about, getting that kind of help, mental health issues. I It's... Um, it's very sobering today and having people try to figure that out on their own is a challenge. Do you think that this um, pandemic and the experience that it's forced upon the education system, do you think it's permanently changed education? In other words, is there something good that's going to come out of this in terms of the distance learning or the way we're approaching teaching through the vehicle of, of distance learning? Do you think it's going to have some positive changes on the education system? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I was just talking to uh, a bunch of um, angel funders the other day from uh, back in my time in Austin. And, you know, they were very distraught. They're trying to figure out how to be helpful. These are philanthropists with their own private wealth and they want, they want it to be right. And one of the things I heard myself saying which did sort of surprise me too, was that, you know, I do think if there is some kind of silver lining for, for us to consider, I think that the silver lining is about the forced change of a 100-year-plus bureaucratic system that was never set up to serve the very people who the majority of these, especially urban centers today. In other words, what I'm saying is that we have an opportunity to challenge the way the system has failed black and brown and poor kids for decades now. Uh, so, you know, when when public education first started, it was it was it was homogenous, it was gender specific, uh, it was often for uh, those only in the highest socioeconomic uh, categories. And then over time, the rest of us have kind of been let in. And so I do think it does allow for uh, those who are willing to do the tough work to reject the old system as we come out of the pandemic 
and build one that is better for all of the children that we see come through our schoolhouse gates. And if we don't take that opportunity to do that now, then I don't think we ever will. I mean, if we try to go back to the old way, not only could we prove that it wasn't working for not just poor kids, but middle, middle class kids were struggling too, sure. um, and, and, and the diversity that we have, then it will only be worse for the out years. So I've, I think the silver lining is the opportunity, the opportunity to really challenge the old system and build something better for the future. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And before I want to segue to talk about your nonprofit, but before I do that, I want to actually give a shout out to my uh, my own school district, which is the Culver City School District in uh, outside of Los Angeles. It's uh, the third most diverse school district in the state of California. And I will tell you uh, and admit that, you know, I was an unhappy parent last spring because I felt like the way they were handling uh, and uh, under duress, understandably, the, the the distance learning was just it was just subpar. My kids just had too much time. There was not enough you know instruction going on, and it was really tough on a on on two parents that work, etc. Now the 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 credit I want to give is that come the fall, and we're still doing full on distance learning. You know, they they clearly did a lot of work over the summer because not that I wouldn't rather have my kids in a physical school if it was safe from a from a health standard. But um, but the, the level of education and engagement that they have and that the school is putting into the curriculum it, through a distance format um, is far, far improved. So the pivot that they did over the summer was very, very noticeable. And, and like I'm a guy who maybe has never called the principal, you know, in, in, you know, I have my oldest kid is 17. I probably never called the principal ever. And last spring was the first time I called the principal to be like, what are you guys doing? And then I called them back this fall saying, you know, give to give them an applause for how much better they were doing. So I just wanted to, I wanted to give that plug to the school district. But what I want to say before we talk about your nonprofit is that, you know, which is really based on uh, the income gap is I, I pulled up some stats, which you can see on your screen right now. And so I wanted to use this as sort of a starting point to get, have you give me a response or a reaction to these numbers. So in 1970, the low income bracket was averaging around $20,000, the middle 58,000 and the upper 126. So you're talking about a six time multiplier from the low end to the high end. In 2000, so 30 years later, uh, it was 28,000. So the, the low income category only went up $8,000. The middle went from 58 to 81, so under 30,000. And then the upper went up $70,000 up to 192. Now in 2018, the most recent stat in this study, it's still 28,000 for the lowest income. So in 18 years, there was zero movement. Um, for the middle gap, it was only a $5,000 increase. And yet for the upper tier, it went up to 200. It yeah, it, it literally doubled in the, in, the, in the 50 years that we're talking about. So talk yeah. to me a little bit about that phenomenon. So, okay. So at the, oh, can you put the screen back on? Yes. Yeah, at the heart, at the heart of when I look at this chart, so I'm going to say something pretty provocative, but I just want to just, you know, tell you how I see it. Those gold bars that show what happens to lower income people, how I translate that, and I want to be clear, what we're doing, it's, it's called, it's a fund. It's not a nonprofit. It is, um, we raise money from private people uh, and, uh, and do a lot of direct giving to uplift caregivers based on the research around how one goes about potentially ending intergenerational poverty. So, and there's a reason for doing that. But when, but my point in this data is what I've said in the fund and why I think we speak to so many people who are encouraged and want to invest in this kind of strategy. Those goal bars for lower income people say to me, 
If you were born in poverty, you die in poverty, right? There is nothing in this chart that encourages me that since the year I was born in 1970 to the time that I am now a professional, you know, minority African-American female, that all of my friends, basically, who were born at the same time going to public school with me that were, you know, in the lower socioeconomic households, their lives did not fundamentally change. So what is disturbing to me, which is why I, you know, I still really want to, you know, uh, reemphasize or put a finer point on this opportunity we need to take with a silver lining around changing the game, changing the approach in these systems is that they are what undergirds all of this is that the very people who are, we're supposed to, even in, I'm going to go all the way back to reconstruction, right? Who were supposed to, in slavery, create new systems that built a better pathway for people who were disenfranchised, in that case, enslaved people, in the 1960s, people who couldn't vote, in the 1970s, people who couldn't get clean water, and the 2020s, people can't have access to connectivity or jobs or uh, quality education. I mean, what you're seeing is a systemic pattern that says, if you are born in poverty, we're going to ensure that you never make it out. And do you think that is a, do you think that is a planned, conscious effort carried out covertly, or do you think it is? I mean, I, well, I mean, I, I do think that there are systems in place that, you know, the very people who, who relieved folks from slavery, who relieved folks from segregation, who relieved folks from um, not being able to vote and not being able to get clean water are the very people who are still empowered to build the new system. So the way it works is that if you don't bring more people to the table, if you're not bringing more diversity in voice and allowing folks to really be part of the change, it will never change. Because you can't convince me that if you, all you've experienced is, you know, upper income uh, benefits throughout your entire life, as did your parents, as did your, as, as did your great grandparents and whatnot, you won't know that experience. So the, the idea here is that you have to open up the opportunity to shape the new design with the very people who need you to change the design. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know what? I think that creates a lot of fear for people. People fear they're going to lose power. People fear they're going to lose wealth. People fear that they're going to not have the opportunity because you have to change your mindset, right? You have to believe that we can grow the pie so you can still keep the same slice or your slice might even get a little bigger. But what you're doing by growing the pie is giving the opportunity for other people to grow as well. If you think that fundamentally, the only way to win this for all Americans is to keep the pie the same size and you just take a bigger slice, squeezing out more people, those bars will never change. That is just they absolutely, that, that is just pure oppression, basically. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people who have been saying that for a very long time. And I think a lot of things are coming to a head because it was rough before the pandemic. Now you not only can you die from the disease, setting that aside, people are now seeing that if you don't have access to connectivity, for example, you cannot telework, you cannot teleschool. So not only is your child not getting the quality education that was supposed to be, that was supposed to be the great equalizer. What our research is showing in this fund that we were looking at is that it has to be bigger than education. You actually have to stabilize the caregiver plus provide the child with a quality education from birth all the way through their 12 you know, school years in school to be able to even catch a break. So just getting the quality education, which is what my parents experienced, right? Get a great education. You can be whatever you want to. You can start breaking some ceilings. But today, it's almost as if it's not enough, or at least the research is saying 
the, 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 the neighborhood environment, the quality of food, living in a food desert, not having access to transportation, not being able to grow up in an apartment or a house that, you know, doesn't have mold or asbestos or lead still are issues that poor people are still experiencing all around this country, no matter where you live. So those things have to change too. So it's going to be the strategy is a two-gen model, right? That's what our fund talks about. It's a two-gen model. On top of that, it is about making sure we stabilize the caregiver so that the child can, can actually have, not, have a more stable experience in school so that schools and teachers don't have to do as much you know, food, clothing, healthcare, policing, those things need to be taken off the back of the school and the teacher and be placed in the community where it belongs. You know, it's not the job of the school to find, you know, healthcare for kids, but we do. We create clinics. It's not the job of the school to um, find a job for the parent, but we do. We have career centers to help our caregivers. Schools are taking on too much, so you can't be surprised that they can't close an achievement gap. They're doing everything for the community except being able to spend 100% of their time on teaching and learning. Yeah. So I feel like this pandemic gives us the opportunity to really change that for the future. I love I love that viewpoint and that perspective and that, that, that hopefulness. Um, tell us the name of the organization and how people can give if they so choose. Yeah, it's a like I said, it's a it's a private fund. They can reach out to us at upliftcaregiver at gmail.com. And we can talk through uh, for funders how they can give. We create a network that allows for direct giving, also allows for us to work with partners who we have uh, studied and are working with to be able to uh, utilize their existing systems to be able to uh, help families actually put in better systems to uplift them as it relates to intergenerational poverty. So again, what we deliberately chose not to create yet another nonprofit, right? And we may end up being there over time, but, um, but ideally what we want to be able to do is connect people better with the right systems that are already in place, that have already been invested in and making those systems better and stronger. So whether it's a public school system or whether it's the actual like housing system or uh, how you get access to higher quality foods. I mean, we've learned a lot during the pandemic. And one of the things that we did work very hard on as a school system and we're able to support and raise money for were, were, for example, those food providers who, like you and me, wanted to be able to not just get, you know, free canned foods uh, from existing, you know, designs uh, where, you know, like you're going to a, a neighborhood church and you're getting whatever somebody decides to donate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we worked really hard to get quality food, people to go shop for them if they were worried about the virus to be able to provide it to them at a high quality, even cooking. And we created massive systems uh, to do technology and food in a way that would show people that there is dignity, that we respect you and that there is dignity in poverty. It doesn't have to always be this kind of handout to a struggling person Mm -hmm. design. And I feel like, the uplift caregiver fund at gmail.com is um, again, reach out to us and, you know, we, we can talk you through kind of how we do it and what we're learning, but um, our study will be, will be finished in about a month. And I'm feeling, you know, very encouraged that we might be able not only to shape how we do this with school systems, but how we would actually do it uh, with partners and providers who've been in the work on the front line as well giving them real feedback on what people believe is the best way to treat them and engage with them, not just in a pandemic, but when they are still living and trying to work their way out of poverty. Well, when, when possible, I would love to see that study. If it's possible to share it, that, that could be a a real interesting uh, second interview, potentially. That sounds like a a fascinating and an, an important study. 
one of the things, Maria, I always do on the show, I shared some stats already. We went over those uh, income gap stats. And the other thing I always do is I bring a quote to the guest to kind of get their reaction. And normally I search for a quote that I think is going to be appropriate. But today, as I was preparing, I I went through an article that you were interviewed in and there behind you was a quote that I felt inspired to just bring to the table today. So I wanted to get your reaction to this quote, which is where we consider our past and present so we can understand where we must go. Yeah, I got goosebumps again. (laughs) Good. Really? Because that was our, that was my last state of the district. Uh, It was, uh, it was called Epic um, because we were going all in and I I am not kidding you. As soon as that, that part of the, the Epic story of Atlanta public schools, of the work we had done over the last several years of the, the challenges we went through. I really feel like it is important that you look at, um, and, and like I said, I went all the way back to reconstruction in this conversation, and and I feel like it does require in this really abnormal time in this on this planet where people, if you are willing to discipline yourself, if you if you stop and really reflect on your own behaviors, the way you think about and talk about people and work and, and our connectivity as a planet. And at the same time, uh, use that as information for how you're going to change your behavior, your thinking and your actions for the future. If everyone just took this moment, we're, we're not fully isolated, but we are spending a lot of time in our own little unit with time to be disciplined, to make some very specific changes about how you're going to come out of this pandemic stronger, better, more thoughtful, more engaged, um, more concerned about the future of 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 our of people. Um, yes. I think that it will tell us explicitly where we must go, and indeed make some sacrifices, make some choices, but make those choices in a way that is good for you but will also be a benefit to others. And, you know, we started with that, you know, when we started talking about Selma and how I was raised and, you know, and I hope to end with that. I just, I really want to see us uh, be better to each other and certainly be more thoughtful and caring about how you break a cycle of poverty, break a cycle of violence, break a cycle of illiteracy, uh, break cycles of corruption so that all people have just a chance at this choice-filled life. And without that, uh, I think, in play and at the forefront of how we're thinking about the future, because we are reflecting on our past and our present, I think we will be come up short as a nation. But this is the time to, to put in those stretch goals and to really go for it for ourselves and for others. I love that. And I, I, that is, that is a powerful way to close. And I, and I have I have one last question <laughs> um, okay. because that was a beautiful that really was a, a perfect sentiment. But I did want to get your reaction based on everything we've talked about, uh, everything from your upbringing to the work you've done with the school district and the nonprofits and all the social challenges we're talking about. And I'd love to hear your reaction about the impact of uh, Senator Harris taking on the role of vice president. Well, I mean, again, goosebumps, um, and I'm a little tearful, so I'm glad I'm not on the video screen because I'm an ugly crier. I'm a really <laughs> ugly crier, and I'm pretty tough, and I don't cry very much, but I will say 2020, now there's a lot of tears flowing, uh, good tears, uh, you know, just of not only relief, but hope and inspiration. You know, f- first, uh, you know, I, I couldn't as an African-American woman, uh, to know that a smart, hardworking, you know, did her time, did her work, uh, did everything that you could hope of any person does. She, you know, went through a time in our country that resonates with me because I grew up in Selma and I do feel like, you know, you, you, we all share in some of these experiences 
that you know that no matter how great or hardworking you are or how much love you have in your family, people still judge you. They don't treat you right. They are disrespectful. They don't give you credit where credit is due. Um, you can be easily dismissed. And, uh, and she has fought through all of that and then some. And, and I know that y'all are in California and she's, you know, from your state, but I feel like she's at least from where I sit, I feel like she represents me for the first time. I feel like in all of this that I've seen on a political landscape that someone like me really is going to be a role model for our country and for not just girls, but boys for all of us, because her temperament is so much more inclusive than anything I've ever seen, but I am proud. I don't know how else to say it. No, that's it's really proud and just so hopeful having her as our future vice president. Well, I, I really appreciate that as a, as a middle-aged white guy, I actually uh, uh, feel, feel exactly the same as you do. <laughs> I'm proud. I'm proud of us as well that, uh, someone like that, um, uh, is going to be representing our, our country. Uh, you know, obviously we've had an African-American in high office, but now that it's a, a woman, I think is just, uh, it's just an important and uh, long overdue step for our country. So Maria, with, with that all said, you're an amazing guest. You're an amazing person. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all you do for those around you. Um, the, the school district there was lucky to have you and your, your, your current work is um, uh, obviously going to make a huge, huge impact. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the choices you've made. And thanks for choosing to be on my show as well. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I just love, uh, I'd love the conversation. And I just, I hope to have more. So thank you. Thank you so much. And come visit us sometime. You, <laughs> Sit in the hot seat with Georgia. Well, my, my, my editor of this show lives in Atlanta, so you never know. So oh, again, wow. yeah, that's cool. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's great. So yes. I look forward to meeting you in person sometime soon. All right. Awesome. Uh, listeners, thank you for taking a listen today. This was another episode of Clear Choices. Uh, in the show notes, you can get more information about Maria's work, her bio, her, her organization. And remember, if you are interested in learning more about podcasting yourself, go to Libsyn.com for powerful podcast hosting and use promo code CHOICES. Thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. All this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.